which can be quite demanding. Hi, and welcome to the next episode of the This and One More podcast by Simple Sessions with me, James Lee. Today, I'm going to talk about an endocrine condition that mostly affects women, polycystic ovary syndrome, or PCOS for short. This is an endocrine condition affecting between 6 and 21% of females. It's actually really quite common, possibly even the most common endocrine condition in, in that population, and it's more prevalent in the overweight or obese people within that population as well. It's The condition is characterized by three things. One, something called hyperandrogenism, which is increased levels of testosterone, which leads to things like increased facial hair or body hair, or also called hirsutism, as well as acne and things like that. The second thing is polycystic ovaries, which is where the condition gets its name, which can affect reproduction, ovulation, and in some cases can actually lead to infertility, worst case scenario. And the third thing is something called oligo or anovulation, which is infrequent or no ovulation. So egg production is significantly affected. There's, there's also a fourth element to this, which is very commonly seen, which is a increase in insulin resistance, which is a key metabolic symptom, although not everyone who has polycystic ovary syndrome will also have insulin resistance. But it is another thing to think about in addition to the ones I've just mentioned and can lead to an increased risk of developing things like cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, as well as having a negative impact on the hirsutism or the hair growth aspect. So all in all, it can be quite debilitating in several ways. The reason that we see the increase in um, andro androgens or testosterone with the concurrent insulin resistance is as a result of an increase in an enzyme called 5-alpha reductase. I won't go into more details about this, but I thought it was just relevant to mention the enzyme, then you can go and have a look into it a little bit more if you are interested. These effects all kind of combine to make a pretty miserable time for some people. And as we, as a result of this, we often see you know, significant impacts on mental health. So we see more depression, more anxiety within this population, which is obviously a significant issue given that so many of the population already suffer from these conditions anyway without that's a very significant impact and will make your life significantly more difficult if you're trying to lose weight as a result of just having to eat significantly less than you otherwise would again this doesn't mean that everyone with PCOS will be affected to this degree but it's worth being aware of in the event that you do try to lose weight and you don't feel like you're getting anywhere it could be because you haven't accounted for this extra decrease in your metabolic rate which could be the the thing that's stopping you. So we'll cover this a bit more in a minute, but just to make you aware of that to start with, it can be quite a big factor. From a food point of view, there are currently no strict rules that we can follow when it comes to helping with the condition, but there's a few little things that, that may help. So what we know so far is that carbohydrate and fats are kind of equivalent in effect, so neither is more beneficial than the other. And by this, I kind of mean that eating a high fat or a high carb diet isn't going to be any more beneficial than the other. Protein in the diet is either neutral or positively beneficial and eating a diet that consists of more low GI or low glycemic index foods is also been shown to be potentially promising. Um, a few examples of 
low GI foods include certain fruits, vegetables, pulses, and whole grain foods such as porridge, oats, concurrent conditions, basically. So for those women with polycystic ovary syndrome, lifestyle change is going to be a key aspect of the treatment pathway with things like exercise, weight loss, improvements in nutrition, and the resultant improvements in any insulin sensitivity or improvements in insulin resistance often having a pronounced and positive effect on symptoms long term. This is also additionally in PCOS often seen or so there's more data to, to suggest that there may be increased protein oxidation especially overnight so again further to that it might even be more important to have an overall higher protein diet potentially even just having a higher proportion of your protein towards the evening um, which may help that overnight period, but that's kind of going into the fine details of it. Metabolic inflexibility, i.e. the body doesn't really have a good ability to switch between energy sources. So obviously the body has a choice of fat, carbohydrates or protein, with carbs being the easiest to break down, fats being the one we want it to use, and protein being one that it sometimes uses, in this case tends to use more than it should. This increased protein oxidation and, and the oxidation just is, is the way the body basically utilizes the protein or in, in the muscle tissue to generate energy. Appears to be as a result of something called metabolic flexibility, or in this case, we can in theory improve our metabolic flexibility. Um, and we can do this by basically playing with our diet. So we can use a few nutritional strategies such as a train low. And when I say train low, I mean low, low carb. So we're not eating carbohydrates before we train or a recover low approach so we're not eating carbohydrates after we train which will encourage the body to utilize more fat more of the fat stores for energy during or after exercise we can also play around with things like fasted training potentially a lower carb diet from this point of view or low carb meals pre-bed for example and we can also play around with periodizing our carbohydrates throughout the day or through the week so we can actually there's quite a few options there depending on what suits the person that we could potentially utilize to try and improve our metabolic flexibility. That might sound quite complicated, but that is kind of one of those areas where having a coach is really helpful because it just means it takes all of that thought out and the relevant aspect can be implemented at the right time according to you know, what you're doing at that time. So that's one big aspect of, I guess, coaching is confusing and stuff like that can be broken down really easily into just manageable chunks or you can just be given something to do and they can explain the rationale behind that at the time. It's also worth noting that if you're someone who's been trying to lose weight for years and you've been trying diet after diet without any luck, it might not be the best time to start trying to lose weight again straight away. Weight loss can be a fairly psychologically demanding process just because it can be a bit stressful, it challenges your willpower a little bit, you're making habit changes and lifestyle changes at the same time. So what we want to do is be able to achieve lasting results and whilst doing that actually not hate the process you know and try and maintain a good relationship with food so we come out of the side having felt like it was a positive process and actively want to maintain what we've achieved and in order to do that we really need to start off from a good place mentally where we're ready for that we've got you know let's say our mental reserves and in inverted commas are, are full so that we can kind of attack it with the right attitude and hopefully come out the other side feeling better about everything. Again, the whole process can be made a bit more difficult in this situation by the potential of having a decreased 
basal metabolic rate, and this can make an already tough process harder still. So just be aware that if you are impacted by this, that the only real effect is that you either have to eat less than you think, which is kind of frustrating but necessary, or compensate with a combination of a lower food intake and a high output, i.e. exercising more. So depending on your lifestyle, you can have a choice between those two, essentially. But ultimately, it's a good idea to go into it under having knowledge of all of these things that can affect you so that if you do hit a bump in the road, it doesn't completely derail you, rather that it enables you to actually consider the options and kind of adapt accordingly, which really is what we want. We don't want to be kind of giving up as soon as we hit a challenge. We want to be able to record how we're going, make notes, adjust, and think of it as like a win or learn process so that we can keep going. So let's move on to supplementation. There are several supplements that have been seen to have a positive effect on polycystic ovary syndrome. And several of these also do have a positive impact for the wider population as well. So things like vitamin D, increasing your omega-3s, for example. But below or after, I'm going to just talk you through um, a list of the supplements that have been seen to have positive impacts in a lot of PCOS sufferers. As with all of these things, it comes under the trial and error. Try them not usually for a period of like three to six months. If you've noticed a positive effect, keep going. If not, but overall aiming for two to three grams daily of a combination of EPA and DHA, which are two acids in omega-3s or fish oils, combined either through supplementing or eating more oily fish. And if you happen to be vegetarian or vegan, you don't have to worry about eating fish or taking fish oil. You can get an algae-based supplement um, which is also available, but I think it's a little bit more expensive. The second thing, vitamin D supplementation is potentially beneficial. Low vitamin D has been linked to increased prevalence of other metabolic conditions like type 2 diabetes, which you don't want anyway, let alone when you've got polycystic ovary syndrome as well. It'll just compound your problems and can also decrease your insulin sensitivity with low vitamin D. So increasing your vit D can help with improving all of those aspects. Potentially, it can also help with depressive symptoms to some degree. And just a point of note as we're going through this, if you do think of any questions as you're listening, don't forget that you can just drop me an email um, at info at simplesessions.co.uk with the title PCOS podcast, and I will get back to you with answers. You can also DM me on Instagram at jameslee.pt. And also to improve your immune function compared, compared to someone who's in a deficient state. So supplementing with around one to 2,000 international units a day may be beneficial. I would probably recommend, if you can, discussing with your GP and getting a blood test just to see where your levels are. It makes life a bit easier if you've got a definite reference point. And also, if you are very deficient, they might recommend actually that you take a much higher initial dose to get your levels back up to where they are. Personally, without a test, I wouldn't recommend any higher than 3,000 IU a day. Um, so 1 to 2,000 to play it even safer is probably a good bet. For reference, we're looking for levels in the blood of 75 nanomol per litre or 30 nanogram per milliliter. If you see it on any test sheet you have, you'll know that's our lowest level that we're looking for. Ideally, you want to take the vitamin D with food. It's absorbed better there, or at least with some fats so that you take it with milk, for example. Um, and if you miss a day, this is one of the few things that you can actually just double up with the next day or even take a large dose once a week if you want to. Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, so the body will just absorb it into the fat tissues and it will be utilised as and when, which isn't the same as 
the water-soluble vitamins like B and C, which just get excreted in the urine. Just a quick point of note here, slight aside, but it's important if you take other medications, because with the vast, vast majority of medications, you should not double dose the next day if you miss a day. So this is definitely with vitamin D the exception to the rule. And just to reiterate that, with most medications, you shouldn't double dose if you miss one dose. You just carry on taking what you've been prescribed. That's quite important. So just bear that in mind. Um, but for vitamin D, it's okay. The third one is L-carnitine, which has been seen in one study, which was, I think, Sami et al. in 2016. Um, it's been seen to have a positive impact on weight loss and insulin levels at a dose of 250 milligrams for 12 weeks with minimal, if any, side effects of this dose. Also with the benefit of it being actually really quite cheap to buy. So it's definitely worth giving it a go. If you see benefits after 12 weeks, keep taking it. And it's best taken daily with your highest carb or protein meal. The fourth one is something called inositol. Again, another relatively cheap supplement, really easy to get from somewhere like MyProtein, for example. And the evidence for this supplement is continually building, and it has been building over the last few years, so it's definitely looking really positive. A dose of around two or three grams twice a day, or four to six grams once a day if it's easier for you, is absolutely fine. Start with two grams twice a day if you don't get any side effects, which is very unlikely. Three grams twice a day is probably going to be slightly more effective. Again, worth trying for six months. You should hopefully feel benefits sooner than that, but also... If you do, keep taking it for longer. You don't really see side effects, or they haven't really been reported, certainly, in people taking a dose less than about 10 grams per day, and the side effects are usually gastrointestinal, so stomach upset, basically. And moving on to a training perspective, exercise, such as resistance training, and actually high-intensity interval training has been seen to be beneficial, largely due to the improvement in insulin sensitivity that comes with that. But in reality, anything that actually gets you moving more is going to be beneficial. Um, we just want to try and get more active. It, exercise is so beneficial for a huge number of reasons above and beyond just this. That is worth doing something. But if you have a choice and you enjoy it, resistance training, i.e. lifting weights, or if you're able to, I think high intensity is generally better. Just be mindful of the high intensity stuff that if you're not used to it, your joints can take a bit of a battering. So build up gradually and or find someone to show you how to do it properly in a progressive way. So overall, it's something that I definitely recommend trying. The positive effects include improvements to ovarian function, decreasing testosterone levels and insulin levels as well. So really good, especially with this condition. And it's also been seen to be safe to take whilst you're pregnant with concurrent metformin use and can help with IVF. So overall, definitely one to try. Um, it's definitely very safe very low side effect profile and is essentially just a naturally occurring sugar in the body um, so we're just topping up the levels basically. In addition exercising more is also potentially beneficial from the weight loss side of things obviously we're burning calories while we exercise often not as many as people think but we are burning more but essentially exercise is a really important aspect for everyone especially those with metabolic conditions for a host of reasons. The overarching theme with all of the things I've just mentioned is that in order to be able to get the best out of it, consistency is going to be essential. However, going into the process, understanding that you also have polycystic ovary syndrome is likely to make things a bit easier in a mental sense because you're understanding that it's going to pose an extra challenge on top of what you're already going to have to go through. And I don't want to make it sound too daunting because it doesn't need to be, but I find the right approach for you is going to be super important here. 
and you want to find an approach that enables you to stay positive even if progress is slower than you like and allow yourself to keep adapting until you see a positive outcome and this might be something that you find in a month three months six months a year might take a bit longer depending on how consistent you are and how easily you, you can adapt to the new situation and that's going to be massively individual and based on your lifestyle so huge amount of factors here so patience is going to be key and consistency to finalize we're just going to discuss a bit about the medication now from a pharmaceutical standpoint that is the kind of angle that i'm going to come from here obviously with all of these medications they are things that are implemented or initiated by a gp so just bear that in mind um but i'm just going to cover off the ones that are commonly used from a medication standpoint then often metformin will be prescribed it's actually off license here in the uk i'm not sure about elsewhere in the world um, but it'll be prescribed to help improve insulin sensitivity it's a common used drug in the treatment of type 2 diabetes but has also been seen to be beneficial in PCOS and um, it also has a positive effect on menstrual cycle regularity and fertility in some cases so again they're two big benefits when we're talking about someone with this condition it is a prescription only drug so again as I mentioned at the start it should only be initiated by a GP However, if you are taking it or you're just starting to take it, it's worth noting that the, the, one of the main side effects here is gastrointestinal upset again. So we'd normally say take it with food. Sometimes hormonal contraceptives are also prescribed to help manage the menstrual cycle. And again, something you need to discuss with your GP as to whether this is either individually relevant or appropriate for you and also which one works for you the best. Because there's a whole range from pills to implants to IUDs that are useful but again it's a very personal choice on that front and there's also a final supplement called berberine that have is sometimes used i've not seen it used in the uk personally i know of a couple of specialists that will use it in the us and that has been seen to have positive effects i think in both polycystic ovary syndrome and type 2 diabetes actually however it's something that's been taken originally from traditional Chinese medicine, I believe, and um, it's not widely used. And as a result, there is a significant lack of safety data currently on it. We know that it is processed by a few enzymes, um, and it's an enzyme inhibitor, which may mean that it in, can it has a quite a high potential to interact with a fair amount of other medications. So it's something that you have to be quite careful with, which just brings highlight to the fact that just because it's a natural substance doesn't mean it's actually safer than drugs it just means that we we one aren't always sure about the quality of it and two often it's not been researched in conjunction with with new, like modern medicine so we sometimes come a cropper with it so this is why i'm lumping in with the medications because if it is something you want to try and you've tried everything else and nothing's working you do need to discuss with your consultant specialist gp whatever to see if it would be appropriate for you so that you can be properly monitored whilst you're using it if you decide to use it and i think the purity needs to be quite high if you find it so 97 percent plus purity i've been told by a consultant who uses it in the us is what you need but again i would highlight here that it is something that you need to speak to your gp or specialist about before starting because one lack of safety data and two potential for interaction with other drugs so just to round off then, looking at the NICE guidance for polycystic ovary treatment, what we see throughout is that lifestyle intervention is the first line option. And one of the 
or and one that can be extremely powerful in kind of condition management if it's approached sensibly and if we approach it with the right mindset we then have our medical interventions if needed in certain people and they'll be implemented if we need to after we've tried lifestyle interventions and if they are only work to a certain degree we might add medication on top or if we haven't quite got there we want a fast result sometimes we could use medications interlinked with lifestyle but lifestyle advice and change is never going to be something that you need to that you can avoid if you want to get control of the condition the most effectively to round up then my top three tips from what i've just discussed over the past probably 20 odd minutes that hopefully you know you can take away and implement would be one start exercising with a preference for resistance training or high intensity intervals or high intensity training generally where possible but overall just do more exercise of any kind is going to be better for you for most people generally speaking starting resistance or weight training at an appropriate level is a really good start point from for a number of reasons you get strong good for insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity improvements good for bone health good for coordination generally it's a great place secondly if you are overweight or obese weight loss will almost certainly have a positive impact on your on your condition potentially improving fertility and decreasing insulin sensitivity and the associated issues with both of those things so that will come with a host of things such as decreasing your risk of type 2 diabetes decreasing your risk of cardiovascular disease so potentially it's a really big thing i know it's not easy to do but well worth trying and or speaking to someone who can help you with that if you are struggling the third thing from a nutritional standpoint consider eating a bit more protein include more low gi food in your diet things like fruit porridge oats pulses etc so basically more greenery and definitely try inositol as a supplement as a dose of probably two grams twice a day to start with you can up it to three grams twice a day if you either feel like it's going really well or you're not having any side effects and you probably will get a slightly better benefit from that you can buy this from most supplement stockists nice and cheaply again the place i found that the sales are quite cheap is my protein and it seems to be pretty good quality if you have any questions off the back of what i've just been discussing over the past 20 or 30 minutes please do get in touch with me drop me an email at info at simplesessions.co.uk or drop me a dm at jamesleypt i'll leave a link in my bio as well if you fancy booking in a call and having a chat i'll happily discuss this with you in more detail and anything else coaching or nutrition related so feel free to have a look there if that would be helpful for you and if there's any other questions that have cropped up as a result again like i said fire them across thank you for listening to this episode i hope it's been useful i hope you found it interesting and i hope you've got something that you can take away and implement if you are someone who suffers or feel free to recommend this episode to someone who you know has the condition or you think might have it just so they can find out a bit more information again it's not a substitute for speaking to a gp but hopefully it'll point you in the right direction so thanks for listening to this episode i hope you enjoyed it and i hope you're looking forward to the next one next week